0: Joshua chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says, And it came to pass when Jabin, the king of Hatsor, heard these things that he sent to Jobab, the king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Akshvath, and to the kings who were from the north in the mountains, in the plain south of Kinnerot, in the lowland and in the heights of Dor in the west, to the Canaanites in the east. And in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Parasite, the Jebusite, the Pepsi light. No, there's no Pepsi light in there. I just made that up. I just wanted to see if you were paying attention. Good, you're paying attention. Go back to verse 3. Below Hermon in the land of Mitzpah. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude with very many horses and chariots. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Mirom to fight against Israel. But the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Mirom, and they attacked them, and the Lord delivered them into the Hand of Israel who defeated them and chased them to the greater Sidon, to the brook Misrephoth, and to the valley of Mitzpah, eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua turned back at that time and took Hatzor, And struck its king with the sword, for Hatsor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hatsor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock and the children of Israel took as booty for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They left none breathing. As the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. We're going to pause just for a moment and and go over these verses until we come to the last half. We, again, Christians can broadly divide our lives into two seasons, really. Really? The seasons of battle in the seasons of rest. Now I want to draw your attention just for a moment of where we've come. Just for a moment. You'll remember in Joshua chapter 10, Joshua and the armies of Israel engage and destroy the people who are occupying the northern regions of uh, of the of the promised land in in chapter 10 they've occupied the southern region in this chapter he's going to do battle with the people in the northern region the chapter describes the victory over the northern alliance who engage in what looks like this last ditch effort to prevent joshua and the children of israel from occupying the promised land It provides, again, the Christian believer with a picture of how our enemies will seek to defeat us and destroy us. In the northern area, there's a call to war to every known king in the region. And the response is going to be breathtaking. A huge army is mobilized with horses and chariots And their number, according to the text, is as the sand on the seashore. You'll remember in chapter 10, they're hiding in caves. In chapter 11, they're out in the open. The reason why this becomes important for each and every one of us is sometimes the battles that we have to fight are sneaky. The enemy is hiding and we have to uncover the enemy and destroy the enemy. And sometimes the enemy will fight out in the open. And look at verse 1, the seasons of battle. In verse 1 it says, And it came to pass when Jabin, the king of Hatsor, heard these things that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Akshoth. And to the kings who were from the north, in the mountains, in the plain of Kinerot, in the lowland, and in the heights of Dor in the west. I should have asked um, James to put up a map of, of the northern kingdom that shows the geography. The geography is going to play an important role in our understanding of the text. If you have a Bible and your Bible has maps... From time to time, I just want to encourage you to look at the map of Israel, and you'll see the Sea of Galilee and you'll see the Dead Sea, and there's a line that draws them together. The the territory to the west is going to go to the ocean, the territory to the north is going to be at Mount Hermon, to the south, it's going to be Egypt, it's going to occupy the areas. It says, so to the Canaanites in the east, the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains, the Hivite below Hermon, which is modern Lebanon. If you go just on the other side of the mountain, um, To the land of Mitzvah. So they went out, they with their armies with them, as many people as the sand, as the as the seashore and multitude, with many horses and chariots. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together in the waters of Miron to fight against Israel. I'm gonna try and explain some of these geographical regions to you in just a moment. But I want to point something out to you that caught my attention when I was preparing this message. We rarely look at the names, but you'll look at the name Jabin, which is the king of Hatsor, And you'll look at the name Jobab. What's interesting about those two names and these kings who are in opposition to God and the people of God and the promises of God and the plan of God, the name Jabin means Intelligent. The name Jobab means howler. Howler in the sense of a person who screams and howls. And I think both of these are important for several different reasons. Because it becomes a type and a picture of the people who stand in opposition to the things of God, the people of God, the plans of God, for reasons of their own. Now, the name of the king of Shimron is not mentioned. We think that this is Tel Shimron, which is about five miles due west of Nazareth in the hills north of the the western end of the Jezreel Valley. I've been there many, many times because typically when we land in Tel Aviv, we will spend some time at the seacoast and we'll make our way through the Jezreel Valley and we'll come up upon Nazareth. And again, one of the reasons why this becomes so, so very very important is these are the lands that are going to be occupied by the people of Israel as the story of the Bible unfolds. So at the beginning when I said Joshua's victory is going to set the stage for Jesus' victory, Joshua's going to occupy the land in order to fulfill the promises to the children of God, but it's going to put in motion... Those people and the places that you're going to read about in the New Testament. Miram, is north and then west of the Sea of Galilee. So if you have a map, or if you have a map in your mind, imagine the Galilee, go a little bit north and west, and in antiquity, that particular place had a waterfront. There were many springs and lakes, and so... The army is going to gather in this particular place as they anticipate the coming of Joshua and the children of Israel. One of the things, again, that I want to bring to your attention, the army was significant. Look what it says. As many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. Josephus, who wrote in the first century A.D., long after this had happened, but who was well-versed and understood the history of the people of of Israel, according to Josephus' estimates, the size of the army was 300,000 armed foot soldiers, 10,000 horsemen, 20,000 chariots. Are Josephus' estimates accurate? We have no way of knowing. So what is it that we do know? We know that this is the largest army that Israel has ever faced. So now, again, imagine battles. There's little battles and larger battles. And typically, in each and every one of our lives, there's the largest battle that we're going to face. It's going to take different forms for different people. And this is what makes this so important. What will Joshua do as he faces an enemy more powerful than they've ever faced before? Now, again, I want you to remember what you've read thus far. When the children of Israel come to Jericho, is there a supernatural intervention by God? The answer is yes. Yes. Do they suffer a crushing defeat at Ai? Yes, they do. Is there another supernatural intervention as God causes the sun to stand still? A miracle takes place in order for Israel to destroy her enemy. The answer is yes. But there's no supernatural intervention that's talked about in this chapter other than the promise that God gives according to his word. And this is one of the challenges that we again face as well. We so want a miracle to be the solution to the confrontation or the battle that we face. And thank God sometimes there are miracles. But sometimes... What we go on is the character of God and his word and the promise that he has made. So again, it's interesting to me that Paul tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 4, for everything that was written in the past was written for our learning, that we, through the patience and the comfort of the scripture that we might have hope. And so what's the big idea? What's the the prominent and dominant theme? Joshua and the people of Israel are going to fight battles. They're going to have to engage the enemy. They're going to have to occupy the land that has been given to them. But what is taking place is Joshua, the general, is going to secure the land. But each of the tribes later on are going to have to occupy the space that's apportioned to them. It reminds me of a song that was sung in the 80s. We can only possess what we experience. We can only possess what we experience. There's the opportunity that's going to be given to possess the land. Now, again, our Christian life is often called a battle or a struggle or a warfare. We have enemies that war against our soul. What are the enemies... That we have, we've talked about them at length. The world, the flesh, the devil. What do all the enemies have in common? They oppose God. And again, if you read Joshua and you read about these wars and you read about these battles and you forget why the struggle is taking place, then you're going to miss something very, very important. And the truth is also you are going to miss something important in your own life. If you begin to think of your enemy as a friend. The Bible says the world is at enmity with God. And that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Or opposition to God. We like to think that Satan, if he's real, has bigger fish to fry than you. We like to think that our flesh loves us, cherishes us, only wants what's best for us. Again, you must remember your enemies oppose God, oppose the plan of God, oppose the power of God in your life. They oppose the will of God and the purposes of God. Paul reminds the Christian that unlike the children of Israel, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, according to Ephesians chapter 6. We are engaged in a spiritual struggle, but we also are given assurance of divine protection. And in the end, ultimate victory. So in broad terms, Paul describes a war on the outside and also a war on the inside. The war on the inside is described in Romans chapter 6 and 7. For what I do not for what I do is not the good I want to do, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing, it says in Romans 7, 19. Paul continues, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law in Romans 7:23, Again, Paul writes, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5. There are two battlegrounds for the Christian. It's in the outside world and it's in the inside world. So Paul, remember, encourages Timothy to fight the good battle in 1 Timothy 1.18. Endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ, he says in 2 Timothy 2.3. Here's the big principle that I want you to remember, in part. Christians often surrender to the enemy rather than oppose the enemy. So let me just be blunt just for a moment. I make fun of my heritage, the Italian people. I noticed that in boot camp, Italian people, they're taught to give up in three different languages. They just go, "Man, hey, we don't have to fight. You hungry? Let's eat. There shouldn't be no struggle. And sometimes Christians adopt that attitude. It's sort of like, When faced with difficulty, you find a way to give up. One of the things that you're going to see about Joshua, and we're going to get to this a little bit later too, Joshua, in my reading, extensive reading of Joshua, do you know how many defensive battles Joshua fights? Zero. All of them are offensive in every single chapter. And so... We are given weapons and armor for our seasons of battle. Joshua is going to mount an offensive battle. And in our battle, according to Ephesians chapter 6, the armor is always in the front. There is no armor for the back. And so we're given an assurance in the season of battle. Look what it says in verse 6. But the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Think about what you're reading. The largest, most intimidating, and devastating battle that they're about to fight, God says, you're going to win. We will win the victory. You as a Christian have a dividing line. The dividing line on one side is defeat and on one side is victory. God has said in his word ultimately concerning the ultimate victory that you're going to experience. Because you have a life and a friendship and a relationship with Jesus. Now again, Joshua is given assurance by the Lord. Joshua is assured of victory over his enemies. And then he's given instructions concerning the enemy's weapons and what they are to do with those weapons. They're to be rendered inoperative. And just like God gives Joshua the victory in the ultimate battle provides almost like a sneak peek into the future of the New Testament and the New Testament Joshua, who's going to be given a promise by the Father to the Son that the ultimate victory is going to lie with Jesus, that all of the things that seem to set us back are going to be overcome in the end. The enemies that stand in opposition to God are going to be confronted and they're going to be defeated. And according to the New Testament, our last enemy, that great enemy, even death itself, is going to be overcome. Now, again, remember what I said in the past the victories the Lord used, conquered Jericho, he caused the walls to fall down, he causes the sun to stand still. But in chapter 11, we don't read about any kind of supernatural or miraculous intervention. God gives a simple but profound promise. I will deliver all of them slain tomorrow. Again, there may come a time in your life when the only thing you're able to do is open up your Bible and turn to the passage and read the promise. And one of the passages that I turn to every single day, or I at least say to myself, I'm trying to think of a day in my life as a Christian where somehow I've neglected to say the words, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he that believeth in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. You open up the Bible. You read the promise. You embrace it for yourself. Remember, the Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. Is it possible to trust God absent a miracle? absent of supernatural intervention. And so Christian sin cannot be left lurking in the caves. Remember, they had to be found and destroyed in chapter 10. Now the battle, the biggest battle of their existence is going to take place out in the open, in front of everyone. The word of God reminds us that we're to confess our sin and forsake our sin and condemn sin in our life. And for the Christian, in order for you to fight the battle, you're going to have to surrender, not to the enemy, but to the Lord. Remember, we're not to surrender to our enemies. We're to to surrender to, To our advocate, Jesus. It's interesting to me. Our culture calls on us to submit to sin. To rationalize sin. Remember, a rationalization is a plausible but untrue excuse of why we do what we do. We find excuses to stay in our sin. In our culture, we even find reasons to celebrate sin. Imagine my shock when I read today a news flash that this president has overturned the bathroom bill. Think just a few months ago, the president of the United States authorized a bill that says what the Bible says about gender is not true. The Bible says God made a male and female, but right now that's not true. If, if you're biologically a man or biologically a girl, we're here to say whatever you want to be, it's fine. You just make up your own mind about your gender and just go with it. You know, it's surprising to me. That if you live in a culture that denies the reality of what the Bible says about God. If it denies the reality about what it says about what it means to be human. If if you deny what it says about gender. It makes perfect sense to me that you're going to deny what it says about sin. But guess what? When you deny what the Bible says about God. And you deny what the Bible says about sin. You will eventually deny what the Bible says about grace. And forgiveness. And hope. And you lose the one mechanism able to give you in to have a right relationship with God. At least this president has turned the corner and said, "You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's okay for men to use the men's room and women to use the women's room." <laughs> Who would think that something like that would? Create a political firestorm. The president orders boys to go to the boys' room and girls to go to the girls' room. But look what it says in verse 7. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Mirom and they attacked them. Think about what you're reading. Joshua discovers that they are mounting an attack. But Joshua's going to take the offensive. And as Joshua takes the offensive, he anticipates what the enemy is going to do and then destroys him even before he has an opportunity to act. Doesn't that sound exactly what Jesus does in the New Testament? Did Jesus know exactly what the devil would do to try and seduce you and deceive you and mislead you? In verse 8 it says, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel who defeated them and chased them to the greater Sidon. Again, I wish I had a map, but what I would show you is that Sidon is up above in that area that we would call Lebanon. In other words, the Miron and the the Galilee, they chased them all the way north, up past and out of the area to the brook Misrafoth and to the valley of Mitzbah eastward, they attacked them until they left none of them remaining. Verse 9, so Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Our friends at PETA hate this verse. What kind of a God would torture animals? Well, let's talk about that for just a minute. In the ancient world, chariots were the heavy weapons of war. In many ways, chariots and horses served in the function of ancient warfare like tanks. These were powerful weapons meant to provide a tactical advantage. When we're reading this, we we have to understand in part what's happening. These are tactical weapons of war used to wage war against Israel. If I were to put this in perspective, we might think of it in terms of tanks, but I'm going to use a different weapon entirely. The weapon that comes to my mind that would better suit our current circumstance is nuclear capability. Now imagine you're fighting against an enemy, and that enemy has nuclear capability. Right at this very moment, Are there crazy countries that have nuclear capability that could create real problems for the whole planet Earth? The answer is yes. North Korea is one of those. We understand also that Iran is on a pathway to nuclear capability. Doesn't it make sense to you that given the opportunity to make North Korea or Iran unable to wage war with these kinds of horrific weapons that that's is that a good idea or a bad idea i'm going to suggest to you it's a good idea the point is that can superior weaponry does that ensure victory or security that's another point in other words The enemies against Israel are larger in number. They have greater resources, a tactical advantage, and weapons of mass destruction, so to speak. But God is making a point. God is making a point that superior weaponry doesn't ensure victory or security. The thing that is going to ensure victory... For the people of God, again, is to believe the promises of God, to submit to God. To obey God. So why would God ask Joshua to hamstring the horses, cripple them, and burn the chariots? The obvious answer to me seems to be that God doesn't want Joshua and the children of Israel to trust in horses and chariots. As a matter of fact, there's an Old Testament passage that says some people trust in horses and some people trust in chariots. But we will trust in our God. Part of the point that I think that the Lord is making is that he wants the children of God not to trust in a sophisticated weapon system, but to trust him. Now that doesn't mean that you don't have sophisticated weapons, but, uh, so, which also could mean that God doesn't want these weapons to be used in a future confrontation, And in verse 10, it says, Joshua turned back at that time and took Hatsor and struck its king with the sword. For Hatsor was formerly the head of the kingdoms. Now, you've got to understand, again, we don't have our map. But Hatsor, and I wish I could could show you, but in the Jezreel Valley, it plays a strategic role. Hatsor, if I were to, to use an image... I'm trying to think of a city that has a crossroads of four different highways, and I'm thinking of Albuquerque. Remember I-25 and I-40 in Albuquerque, you go north, south, east, and west. Hatsor was along the north, south, and east-west route. The Levant, or Palestine, or Israel, serves as a land bridge between Assyria in the north and Egypt in the south, and Babylon to the east. So the city is by far, during the time of Joshua, the largest city in the promised land. It's larger than Jerusalem. To put it in perspective, it was 14 times larger than Megiddo. It was 25 times larger than Jericho. I have been to the archaeological ruins of Jericho, Megiddo, and Hazorah. Hatsur was like a sprawling metropolis. It was along the road between Egypt and Syria, and then Assyria and Babylon. And so it's very, very important that to capture this particular place means that you're going to be able to secure all of the northern kingdom. And it says in verse 11, And they struck the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hatzor with fire. You know what's interesting about the archaeological ruins there? There's layer and layer and layer and layer of occupation. We know that it was occupied because there's records in Egypt and Assyria concerning its presence. And then the archaeological discovery of a charred, ruined point. This is the place where Joshua literally burned the city just like the Bible says Now, I know that some of you often, maybe not often, but every once in a while in your heart, you might be thinking, how do I know that the Bible is true? And how do I even know that what it's saying is true? And one of the things I just, again, want to encourage you, that the archaeological evidence that we uncover from time to time support the testimony of what the Bible says. Joshua burns the city in verse 11 they struck all the people that were in it with the edge of the sword utterly destroying them there was none left breathing then he burned hot sore with fire he burns the city the victory assures the occupation verse 12 so all the cities of those kings and their kings Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword he utterly destroyed them look what it says as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. And over and over again, there's that reoccurring theme. The reoccurring theme is Joshua did exactly what he was told to do. Joshua has been told that he is going to have to deal ruthlessly, specifically, concerning the enemies who are occupying the land. And remember what we've always talked about as we've been studying this book. It becomes a type and a picture for the Christian of how we're to deal with sin. We can't play games with it. We can't give it quarter. We, we can't accommodate it. In verse 13 it says, But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor, only which Joshua burned. Why? Why does he allow the other cities to remain intact but burn Hazor to the ground? Because these cities can be occupied. They can be taken advantage of. The vineyards can be cultivated. The the orchards that exist and the houses that are there. It says, and all the spoil of those cities or these cities and the livestock, the children of Israel took as booty for themselves. But they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they left none breathing. As the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses Commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone. Note that. He left everything undone? No. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. This becomes an exciting clue. Into how to experience victorious Christian living. Walking in joy and freedom in the promises of Jesus. It's that very, very special reward that comes from obedience. I want you to think about that for just a moment. It's obedience that brings victory. Now we look at the rest of the chapter. Look what it says in verse 16. Then Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, It might be hard for you to imagine, but again, if you have a map in your Bible, picture Israel, picture the coastline, picture the mountain range, picture the Jordan Valley. He's describing a geographical area. He says from Mount Halak and the ascent to Sire, even as far as Baal, Gad, in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon, he captured all their kings, struck them down and killed them. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. We've already read about that. Remember, the Gibeonites deceived them into forming a peace alliance. All the others they they took in battle, for it was the Lord... For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. And at that time, Joshua came and cut off The Anakim from the mountains, from Ebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the mountains of Judah, from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Goth, and Ashdod, which is going to form what is now the modern Gaza Strip. It's also going to be the future home of a giant That David is going to have to contend with. So Joshua took the whole land. According to all that the Lord had said. To Moses. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel. According to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. In broad terms we're given a picture. Of victory and conquest. At the opening verse 16. Joshua took all This land. And then we're given a description of the conquered territories. From the southern point. Which is Mount Halak. To the northern point. Baal. Gad. It's describing a geographical region. From the south to the north. The lands of the captured kings are conquered. And possessed in verse 17. And in verse 18 it says. So Joshua. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. The greatest battle was fought and won in a day. But now we're talking about a series of battles that are fought, and it says it took a long time. How long is a long time? Again, Bible scholars are divided over just how long this period of time was. The best estimate that I can see from the majority of scholarship that's been done in this particular area is that it took some seven years. It took some seven years to make this final series of battles and to conquer the region and then to occupy the land. Why is even that an important thing? Because some victories are won right away. And some victories are slow, deliberate, maybe even painful process. There might be some battles that you might have to fight every day, day after day, for years to come. And it says in verse 19, there was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites. Remember we read about them? The inhabitants of Gibeon, all the others they took in battle. Now the passage gives us a peek again into the enemies of God. They are hard. They are stubborn. They are obstinate. They are unbelieving hearts. Because you might be wondering about that. How come I seem to be in a constant battle with my family members, with this culture? How is it that I have to constantly Be in a battle to defend Jesus and and to defend the Bible and to defend what the Bible says about the human condition or about the nature of God or, or the problem of sin or the solution to sin. And your family members, your friends, they're not your enemies. Remember the Bible says we battle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers. You might have opposition from the people that you care about. But they're not your enemy. Remember, according to Corinthians in Paul's letter, he he talks about that the God of this world has blinded their eyes so that they can't see the truth. And so every once in a while, rather than get painfully frustrated with the people around you, remember to pray and say, Lord, will you please cause the scales of their eyes to drop and their heart to open so that they can understand and receive the truth? What's interesting about these Canaanite people, look what it says. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel. None of them seek peace. Again, he gives the exception of the Gibeonites who obtain peace through deceit. And by the way, that is sometimes the only way that you have peaceful resolution. And I'm, I'm, But it's, again, it's, it's always an awkward peace. It's always an awkward peace when, when the peace is based on deception. Let's ju- Imagine you're having a conversation with somebody and you say, let's just agree to lie to each other. So that we can stay happy in the relationship. As you know, it's a false peace. In verse 20, it says, For it was the Lord, it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them, as the Lord had commanded Moses. We learn that God allows them. To remain in that hardness of heart and obstinacy of unbelief and opposition. Did God harden their hearts to keep them from being saved? I'm going to suggest the answer is I don't think so. I don't think God hardened their hearts so that they couldn't be saved. I think it is rather the evidence of an evil and an unchanging heart that refuses to be saved. We use the illustration in in the book of Exodus with Pharaoh. You'll remember that Pharaoh hardens his heart. And the Bible says that God hardens his heart. And we use the illustration that his heart is like mud, if you will. Mud or clay becomes hardened when it's exposed to the sun. Wax, when it's it's exposed to the sun, begins to melt. The sun is the sun is the sun. The sun beats on the mud, it becomes clay. The sun beats on the wax, it begins to melt. Are there wicked, evil, sinful People who refuse to repent and abandon their sinful opposition to God. I want to answer this carefully. Because I think that I fall into the category of a person who was and is a sinner. A person who had a hard, obstinate, hurtful painful, wicked rebellion against God. What was it? What was it in God's grace and God's mercy and God's majesty and God's sovereignty that allowed my wicked, evil heart to experience not just modest grace, but generous grace? I think that the answer is exactly what the Bible says, that we're saved by grace through faith, that it's the gift of God, lest any person should boast. Remember, these are nations. These are people who reject God, the plan of God, the purposes of God. These people deny that God is the source of life, that he's the giver of all things, Their own heart and their own evil imaginations won't submit to God. They won't submit to the grace of God. And in verse 21, it says, and at that time, Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Ebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the mountains of Judah, from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with with their cities. Now, remember the battle mission to occupy the land also includes a plan to defeat the Anakim. These were a race of giants who opposed God. And I think the the most important thing that we need to remember at this point is that in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, these are the same giants that terrified the original spies. Remember Joshua and Caleb, along with 10 other people, went into the land to scout the land out some 40 years earlier. They came across this race of giants, and they said, you know what? These people can't fight them. These people, you can't overcome them. These people, there's no way we wouldn't stand a chance against them. But remember what Joshua and Caleb did. They believed that what God said was true. And Joshua confronts them. And he overcomes them. And in verse 22, it says, None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and Ashdod. This is going to be a stronghold. During the time when the children of Israel are going to occupy the land, and they're going to remain a stronghold. And they're going to remain a persistent source of antagonism and pain in future generations. This is one of those areas that would, would serve as a disappointment because guess what? They're not completely rooted out, is part of the point that's being made. And then there's a season of rest. Look what it says in verse 23 so Joshua took the whole land. According to all that the Lord had said to Moses. Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel. According to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. Again we discover Joshua and the armies secure it. But the children of Israel are going to have to occupy it. Each and every one of them are going to need to take possession in the future of the land that's been allotted to them. So what is the result of Joshua's persistent and obedient engagement of the enemy? Victory. And what kind of a victory? The victory that results in the possession of the inheritance. And what kind of possession of inheritance? What's the fruit of that obedience? the fruit of that obedience is rest. For the children of Israel, it's a respite from war. And it's interesting to me that for the Christian, it's a different way of thinking about it. Let me me tell you, does the Christian rest from the battle against the world, against the flesh, against the devil? I'm going to suggest to you the answer is no. So, what is it that is our rest? We rest against the antagonism and the battle as unbelievers against God. You see, before we became Christians, before we gave our life to the Lord Jesus Christ, we were in a war, we were in a battle. We were antagonists against the God of heaven. When Jesus comes into our life and we occupy Christ, The battle is over. And we enter into a rest. What kind of a rest? It's the kind of rest where you begin to understand something. Have you ever been terrified because your sin was destroying you? It was hurting you? Everything imaginable that sin could do, it was doing to you? Did you ever go to bed a single night wondering whether or not you were going to go to heaven or hell? And so there's a rest from guilt. A rest in the knowledge that you're going to heaven instead of hell. There's a rest that comes knowing that Jesus is the satisfying solution to all of the pain and the problem. And like I said, remember Joshua's battles have been offensive, not defensive. Joshua doesn't dig or build fortified defense structures. He employs field warfare. When Joshua learns that an attack is about to take place, he anticipates the attack, he attacks himself, he employs the elements of surprise. He comes upon the enemy suddenly. And defeats them completely. And that's why I think the New Testament says that Jesus has made an open display of Satan, that the cross of Calvary has defeated Satan. He's a defeated foe. In World War I, Marshal Fauch in the Second Battle of Marne was asked about his situation. He sent a dispatch. My left falters. My center is weak. My right crumbles. I'm attacking. That's what Joshua does. Striking. And I want you to think about this. Why does Joshua go forward, attack, occupy? Because those were his orders. His orders weren't, Give up, back off, retreat. What are your orders? What has Jesus asked you to do? What are your marching orders in this thing that we call the Christian life? Oddly enough, the commands are so simple, they're almost embarrassing. He says, Here are your orders. Love the Lord and then love each other. Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, he says, go into all the world. Make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I taught you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. The strongest criticism that Joshua receives from his critics is his unfailing commitment to render the enemy destroyed. That's what Bible scholars hate about this passage. Do you see the way Joshua killed all those people? Yeah. Do you see how cruel he was to the horses? I know. Why did he do that? He was following orders. It might be hard for you to believe Jesus has been very gracious and he's been very kind. The way that Jesus deals with sin in our life is he will die on the cross for our sins. But what about the person who rejects his love, rejects his sacrifice and says, "Do do you know what? I want to be accountable for my own sin. I want to stand before God And allow myself to represent myself to God. The Bible says that there's a fearful judgment that awaits them. The key to Joshua's victory, complete obedience to the Lord. Remember verse 15? Just as the Lord commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. So Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Joshua said, I am going to do exactly what I'm told. Do you realize in the New Testament, Jesus said, everything my father has asked me to do, I am going to do. Jesus is the one who will deal catastrophically with sin. The whole world should go on notice that God won't tolerate sin indefinitely. Sin has to be dealt with. The Canaanite people weren't the only people who experienced God's wrath. I was reading a little pamphlet in the Bible Knowledge book. This, it said this, quote, Bloody Assyria. Sensual Babylon, vice-ridden Greece, degenerate Rome have each been consumed by the results of their own lust. Later ages saw the decline of Spain with its inquisition, and more recently the collapse of the third Reich. The greatest nations in the world today are by no means immune from God's punishing hand, and neither is any individual who does who dares to sin and deliberately Oppose the will of God and the purpose of God and the sovereign Lord on the earth. Unquote. What this reminded me of is again, when nations oppose the God of the Bible, reject the Bible's analysis of sin and the solution to sin. When people stand in opposition to God, then there's only one thing left judgment. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln issued this proclamation. I'm going to close with it. He said, He did this in 1863. He said, We, the American people, have been recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand that preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace too proud to pray to the God who made us it behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sin to pray for clemency to beg forgiveness can you imagine if a president said that today what was true in 1863 was true in 2013 and 2017 and 2023 an individual who forgets God who forgets the gracious hand of God who forgets the God of peace who forgets the God who strengthens us and enriches us the the God who has made us aware of our the deceitfulness of sin and the deceitfulness of our own heart and a provision that has been made so that we could understand and embrace the truth that if we neglect so great a salvation, how could we be anything other than the recipients of a fearful judgment. All the more reason. Remember grace. Remember mercy. Remember God's love. Remember that this Joshua is going to conquer this land so that our Joshua will forever conquer the problem of sin. And become the lover and the occupier of our soul. And so we fight. The enemies that are hiding in the caves. And the enemies that come out into the open. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time. Again, thanks for your grace and your mercy. Lord, thanks for your redeeming and preserving grace. Lord, we pray That just like Abraham Lincoln told the country over 150 years ago. That perhaps individuals can pray. Perhaps even a nation could humble itself before the offended power. Lord, if we're unwilling to confess our personal sins, we probably won't be willing to confess our national sins. But, Lord, you've given us an invitation that we could cry out to you for mercy, for grace. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be found in the bitter company of the people who oppose you, who oppose grace, who oppose the gospel, who oppose your plan for the ages to know Jesus, and to be known by Jesus. And so, Lord, again, we commit this time to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.